Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host. Now, some of you may know me from my weekly trivia nights that I host. For those of you who do not, I have been hosting trivia nights for about the past two years. And due to the COVID shutdown, I have decided to start a podcast to give anyone striving for some trivia content an outlet to listen to until we're able to all be together again at our local pub trivia contests. My hope is that even once that happens, ThinkCap will be your go-to podcast to supplement your trivia knowledge to help you learn a little bit more or to help you impress your friends or coworkers or a date out out at a trivia night. So let me go over how this podcast is going to work. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer, the history, or the data, or even just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that gives you just the question and an answer. I will give you a quick breakdown that will hopefully tickle all of your curious minds out there while also hopefully entertaining you with my banter. My hope is that by listening to my podcast, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding that question. I consider myself a general trivia show, so you never know what you're going to get. Now, with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap Trivia Podcast, and let's get this show started. Alright, so like I said before, we've got a couple different questions for you tonight, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read each question for you give you a couple moments to think about each one, um, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So kind of like I said before, our, it's general trivia. Um, you're going to get questions, topics all over the map. So sit back, relax, and uh, let me read your questions for you. Question number one. In quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle asserts a limit to the level of precision to which physical properties of a particle can be known. Who developed this principle in 1927? One more time. In quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle asserts a a limit to the level of precision to which physical properties of a particle can be known. Who developed this principle in 1927? Question number two. What do you call the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse? One more time. What do you call the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse? Question three. Launched in 1990 and still in operation, what space instrument is soon to be succeeded by a device named after former government official James Webb? One more time. Launched in 1990 and still in operation, What space instrument is soon to be succeeded by a device named after former government official James Webb? Question number four. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, what was Private Ryan's first name? One more time. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, what was Private Ryan's first name? 
Question number five. What Asian leader was known as the Little Brown Saint? One more time. What Asian leader was known as the Little Brown Saint? Question six. What group was Ringo Starr a member of before his time with the Beatles? One more time. What group was Ringo Starr a member of before his time with the Beatles? Question number seven. What do you call a camel with one hump? One more time. What do you call a camel with a single hump? Question number eight. An aficionado was the official moniker for a follower of what cultural sport? One more time. An aficionado was originally a moniker for a follower of what cultural sport? Question number nine. Released in 1962, what James Bond film kickstarted the secret agent genre that flourished in the 60s? One more time. Released in 1962, what James Bond film kickstarted the secret agent genre that flourished in the 60s? And question number 10 here for you. This is our last question of the night. What city has the largest Polish population outside of Poland? One more time. What city has the largest Polish population outside of Poland? All right, so now that I've uh, read all your questions for you uh, and I've given you a couple moments to think about them, I'm going to go through each one and I will read off the question again one more time, give you the answer and then hopefully teach you a little bit of something about that particular answer. All right, and our first question was a bit of a doozy. The question was, in quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle asserts a limit to the level of precision to which physical properties of a particle can be known. Who developed this principle in 1927? And your correct answer, the principle was developed by Werner Heisenberg. So I'm going to give you a very surface level description of the principle. Uh, we're just going to dip our toes into it a little bit. Quantum mechanics is defined as the branch of mechanics that deals with the mathematical description of the motion and interaction of subatomic particles. It's generally regarded as the theory that is our best candidate to become the fundamental and universal description of the physical world. Basically, how things interact with each other. Now, the concept, the conceptual framework employed by this theory differs from that of classical physics. The transition from classical physics to quantum physics is a pretty huge step in our understanding of the world. The uncertainty principle is the most distinctive feature that differs quantum theory from classical physics. In one sentence, the uncertainty principle states that the momentum of a particle and the position of the particle cannot both be precisely determined at the same time. Compare this to things that are not on the subatomic level, a car for example, and it's very easy for us to conceptualize the velocity and location of the vehicle as it passes by on the road. However, if you next take an electron for example, and try to measure its precise velocity, it will be knocked about in an unpredictable way. Now this doesn't have anything to do with errors in the measuring device, but more so with the connection between particles and waves in the subatomic dimensions. 
On a subatomic level, there is another concept known as the wave-particle duality that says every particle has a wave associated with it and every particle exhibits wave-like behavior. So to lump this all together, I'm going to read an excerpt from Britannica that explains this phenomenon and hopefully uh, helps quantify it a little bit for you. The particle is most likely to be found in those places where the motion of the wave are greatest. The more intense the motion of the associated wave become, the more ill-defined the wavelength becomes, which is used to determine the momentum of the particle. So, a strictly localized wave has an indeterminate wavelength. Its associated particle, while having a definite position, has no certain velocity. A particle wave, having a well-defined wavelength, on the other hand, is spread out. The associated particle, while having a rather precise velocity, may be almost anywhere. An accurate measurement of one observable trait involves a relatively large uncertainty in the measurement of the other. So, yeah, this is, that's the principle that Mr. Heisenberg developed in 1927. Clearly, it's an extremely complicated and intricate concept, so I'm going to leave the, the Ant-Man type conversation right there for now, and we can uh, move on to our second question. Our second question was, what do you call the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse? And your correct answer is a mule. Now, a male donkey is known as a jack, while a female horse is known as a mare. So those are your parents that uh, will spawn a mule. And like I said, while the correct answer is the common mule, if you actually inverse and a male horse mates with a female donkey, you produce an animal called a hinny. Now, the interesting thing about mules, and the reason that they're so prevalent is that they're actually stronger relative to horses of the same size. They tend to be more patient and live longer than horses too. They're willing workers and also tend to be more intelligent than donkeys. So they're pretty much the perfect work animals. And if they were able to reproduce, I think that we would have much less use for horses and donkeys than we do now. Mules and hinnies, uh, which I mentioned before, have 63 chromosomes, a mixture of the horse's 64 and the donkey's 62. The different structure and number usually prevents the chromosomes from pairing up properly and creating successful embryos, rendering most mules infertile. In fact, records show that as of 2002, there have only been 60 documented cases of mules birthing foals since 1527. 1527, that's a long time and only 60 documented cases. Um, foals also meaning young animal or young horse. Now, it has been reported that mules trained with the army of Pakistan have carried weights up to 160 pounds to distances of just over 16 miles without rest. That is fantastic durability uh, for a relatively common animal. Mules are the most common and oldest known man-made hybrid animal. They were very common work animals in ancient Egypt, with records showing their use dating all the way back to 3000 BC. I mean, even in the Bible, King David and King Solomon both rode mules at their coronations. So basically, to sum it up, mules are perfect animal companions for working humans, and we've had that figured out for thousands of years, and I'm fairly certain that we're going to employ them for thousands of years more. Alright, question number three. Launched in 1990 and still in operation, 
What space instrument is soon to be succeeded by a device named after former government official James Webb? And your correct answer is the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, in middle schools all across America, the walls of all the science classrooms are always covered with images of distant galaxies and dust clouds. They're always full of brilliant colors that inspire the children that look at them. I personally remember being one of those kids standing there thinking about how grand the outer reaches of space were. I can specifically recall asking my teachers if the vibrant colors in the images were real and how we managed to even capture those pictures in the first place, seeing how far away uh, the topics of the image were. And I remember being told that the Hubble telescope is a giant telescope that was sent into outer space to take pictures that it relays back to Earth. It takes pictures using particular wavelengths of light that our eyes cannot quite see and that the images that we see are digitally recolorized so that we can see its elements more distinctly. The origins of the Hubble Space Telescope were conceived in 1981 when the Space Telescope Science Institute was established in Baltimore, Maryland. It was just about ready to be deployed, but due to the Challenger mission tragedy in 1986, shuttle flights were delayed for over two years and the telescope was left to simply be tinkered with in the meantime. After upgrades to its solar batteries and other important systems, the Hubble was finally launched on April 24th of 1990. Now if you think about it, this means that it has continuously been functional for 30 years now. I mean, granted tune-ups and repairs have been necessary throughout its lifetime. There have been five different servicing missions where we've sent up astronauts to service different components. Following its 2009 touch-up, NASA announced that it plans on running the telescope until all of its parts fail, which at the time they estimated could have been as early as 2015. That date has obviously passed and the Hubble is still operational. So the first question is, why do we need a telescope in space as high-powered telescopes down here, I'd say, work pretty well? The answer has to do with the way that light refracts as it enters the Earth's turbulent atmosphere. You know when you look up and you see a star twinkling? That's actually due to the bending of light as it enters the atmosphere. Once we are taking photos from outside the atmosphere, we're able to collect data that is much more precise than what we can accomplish from Earth. In no particular order, the Hubble has accomplished some of the following advancements in astrophysical history. It heavily supported the existence of dark matter, it proved that light is affected by gravity and will actually bend around stars and black holes. Mentioning black holes, the Hubble's detection of gamma rays has helped scientists to theorize on how black holes are actually formed. We also learned that at the center of almost every galaxy is a massive black hole. Hubble has also helped us measure the rate at which the universe is expanding and Using this information has helped us to calculate the approximate age of the universe to be about 13.6 billion years. Now, the mathematical constant used to describe the expansion of the universe has, na has been named, you guessed it, the Hubble constant. And beyond all of this, it has simply just taken some breathtakingly detailed photos of deep space that are simply a treat to look at. Now, I could go on and on about the importance of the Hubble Space Telescope because of all it has done over the past 30 years and that just makes me think we can only imagine the wonders that will come from the discoveries that the James Webb Space Telescope will make once it's finally put into orbit. And our fourth question, in the movie Saving Private Ryan, what was Private Ryan's first name? And your correct answer is James. His name was James Francis Ryan. Saving Private Ryan is 
a renowned 1998 epic war film directed by Steven Spielberg. It's set during World War II and is most known for its brutal portrayal of the Normandy landings and the uh, Omaha Beach invasion. Now, that scene probably doesn't even do the reality of the Operation justice, much like this one-second summary of the movie probably won't do it justice, but the, the film itself follows a, a group of U.S. Army Rangers who are on the quest to find Private James Ryan. It is a fantastic movie, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Private Ryan is an American soldier who served in the 101st Airborne Division in Baker Company, 1st Battalion, 506th PIR during World War II. His rank was Private First Class. He was under the command of Captain Jennings. He was the youngest sibling of the Ryan family. His older brothers were Daniel Ryan, Peter Ryan, and Sean Ryan, and his mother was Margaret Ryan. His wife was only known as Mrs. Ryan throughout the film. It's kind of fun to look into backstories of characters in films. The more you re the more research you do, the more that you will find that a lot of times there's so much more lore sprinkled throughout movies that if you stitch together clues, you'll actually find an almost complete story on its own about just a single person's life. And that's definitely the case with uh, Private Ryan. Like I said, fantastic film. Uh, I recommend seeing it. If you're squeamish, I wouldn't recommend watching it actually now that I think about it. The first scene is pretty powerful, but um, if you enjoy war movies, it's a fantastic film and I would definitely recommend it. And your fifth question, the question was, what Asian leader was known as the Little Brown Saint? And your correct answer is Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi is the right answer. Now, the Little Brown Saint is a name that was conjured up affectionately for Gandhi by his followers. He was an Indian lawyer who became the leader for the nationalist Indian movement against British rule. Now, Mahatma itself was not his name by birth, but rather it's a term that was also given to him, meaning great soul. His first name is actually Mahandis. Now, Gandhi is most known for his doctrine of nonviolent protests as a means of revolution. He believed that it was the best way to drive social and political progress. He grew up in a Hindu household with parents who worshipped the Hindu god Vishnu. Now, growing up indoctrinated this way taught him not to injure any living beings. It taught him vegetarianism, uh, fasting as a form of self-purification, and a mutual tolerance between believers of various creeds and sects. So, very tolerant person his entire life. That's kind of just the way he was brought up. Um, he began his social resistance when he was working for a firm in South Africa and he witnessed the discrimination that he and uh, other Indian people had to put up with uh, in that area. Now his campaign that he put up in South Africa lasted eight years and it actually ended with a compromise negotiated by Gandhi himself that fought against the stigmas that held back Indian immigrants to the country. Over time his eloquence and disciplined practices and overall lifestyle gained him many loyal followers. He continued his social missions when he returned to India, this time focusing on multiple non-violent, non-cooperation campaigns against the British. Now, he emphasized India's economic independence from Great Britain with his protests. For example, he advocated the manufacture of homemade cloths to remove the need for British textile imports. He also fought against a salt tax that was lobbied on the Indian communities. 
Hunger strikes were another popular method employed by Gandhi and his followers. Now, the entire story of Indian independence could be a podcast on its own, but in the end, Britain ceded its colony and the land was split into the Hindu-centric India and the Muslim-centric Pakistan. Now, that divide itself was also opposed by Gandhi, but he had hopes that the two regions would be able to come together uh, for sustained peace over time. Gandhi's legacy lives on even today. He is, without a doubt, one of the most recognized international figures in recent history. And for those looking for their own methods of peaceful protest, I would heavily advise studying the great souls, practices, and ideologies. There is no one who is better or uh, more impactful with their practices than Mahatma Gandhi. Our sixth question of the podcast was... What group was Ringo Starr a member of before his time with the Beatles? And your correct answer is Rory and the Hurricanes. Now, Rory Storm was an English vocalist who grew up in Liverpool, England, as did Ringo Starr. The two and their respective musical groups would frequent the Morgue Skiffle Club, which was an underground venue that would play weekly shows of about 100 patrons. In addition to their groups, another young band named the Quarrymen, which as some of you may know would go on to become the Beatles as we know them, would also play the same venue. So Storm met Ringo Starr at a talent contest called 6.5 Special. Starr had previously played with Eddie Clayton's Skiffle Group and at the time was drumming with a group called Dark Town Skiffle. In addition to working in the band, Starr was working as an apprentice at Henry Hunt's which made climbing frames for schools. Now, once Ringo joined his band, Rory Storm was actually the one who convinced him to quit his apprenticeship and to focus on his music full-time. In addition to telling him that there would be plenty of women lined up because of his stardom, pun intended, that he would give him his own signature drum solo at the end of every show so that he could project his talents. These segments would be called Star Time, and were one of the first instances of the legend that Ringo would become. Although the group itself did not have much recording success, they were a hit in the Liverpool and Hamburg club scenes, and even played larger gigs like the one at Liverpool Stadium in 1960. It was while Ringo was the drummer for Rory Storm's band that he adopted the first name Ringo instead of Richard, for all the rings he wore, and Star instead of Starkey for his famous Star Time solo. And as we all know, he went on to a very, very, very successful career with the Beatles. And now on to question number seven. The seventh question was, what do you call a camel with one hump? And no, I promise you this isn't the start of a joke. The correct answer is a dromedary. Now, there are three types of camels. The dromedary, also known as the Arabian camel, the Bactrian camel, and the wild Bactrian camel. Both other species of camel have two humps. Dromedaries are the tallest of the three species, standing between six and six and a half feet tall. History tells us that dromedaries were first domesticated on the Arabian Peninsula over 4,000 years ago. Now the name dromedary itself is derived from the Greek word dromus, meaning running or runner. This can be attributed to man's early domestication of the animal and it's used for food and personal transport over the ages. Now one quick thing I will mention about camels in general before moving on to the next question 
is that their humps are not full of water, much like cartoons would have us believe as children. The hump itself is actually what allows the camel to live in arid environments where food is scarce. So, as the legend goes, they can live long in the desert because their humps are full of water. While that's not necessarily true, it is because the hump holds excess fat, which the animal can burn off in times of need. So, like I said, if the animal lives in the environment that's hot, dry, arid, as most deserts are where you would find a camel, it doesn't store water, but it does have excess fat that the camel can use to survive in that environment. Alright, our eighth question was, an aficionado was originally a moniker for a follower of what cultural sport? And your correct answer is bullfighting. Bullfighting is the right answer. Ernest Hemingway said of it in his 1932 non-fiction book, Death in the Afternoon, quote, bullfighting is the only art in which the artist is in danger of death and in which the degree of brilliance in the performance is left to the fighter's honor. Now, bullfighting has its origins in Spanish culture, tracing all the way back to 711 AD. 711 AD, when the first official bullfight was held to honor the coronation of King Alfonso VIII. At first, bullfighting was reserved for just Spanish men of noble birth, but King Felipe V put an end to this because he deemed it improper for nobles to practice such a bloody sport. Common Spanish folk continued to develop and practice their bullfighting techniques with smaller and smaller weapons until it grew into its modern form that we can see today in the mid-1700s. The mid-1700s is just about when it got as modern as it is now. Uh, it's pretty much the same routine that you'll see then as we have now. And another quick fun fact for you, bulls are actually not angered by the color red. Like I said in the camel question, it's a common um, misconception that is taught to you or it's just understood at a young age that bullfighting, bulls are mad at the color red. That's why they charge at the matador. In actuality, the red cape is more of a traditional component of a bullfight. Um, it's very theatrical in nature. Um, it in, act in actuality, two bulls are partially colorblind and cannot even see the color as we do. So our uh, understanding of bulls chasing the red flag is pretty much completely off base. In reality, like I said, they are pretty much colorblind and that's essentially a fool's tale. The, the cape is used mostly for its theatrical purposes. And question number nine. Question number nine was released in 1962. What James Bond film kickstarted the secret agent genre that flourished in the 60s? And your correct answer is Dr. No. Dr. No was directed by Terence Young and based on the novel of the same name, which was published in 1958. Sean Connery was the first to depict James Bond in his iconic role. Now, Connery, who stood at 6'2", was an amateur bodybuilder, and the director initially thought that he was too stiff and that they needed a more graceful movement out of an experienced spy if they wanted to sell the crowd on him actually being this great spy who could move around swiftly that he was too stiff that he was too large in stature that he would not fit or sell the role however over time he became comfortable as james bond and 
now is regarded as one of the greatest Bond actors of all time. In addition to, and with the aid of other Bond films, such as From Russia With Love and Goldfinger, the spy genre became a smashing hit in the 60s. Other successful titles include The Ambushers, Dr. Goldfoot, Fathom, The Helicopter Spies, and How to Steal the World. I would say that espionage media is still popular today, although it doesn't have that same amount of mystique that it did to viewers at the time. You know what, I, I say that, but I feel like the past few Bond films have been pretty successful and the general reviews of them have been pretty outstanding. I think there's another one set to release this year, so I guess we will find out just how the public feels about more spy films in the year 2020. Alright, now time for question number 10. This is our last question of this week's podcast. The question was, what city has the largest Polish population outside of Poland? And this is an interesting one, as for a while, people from Chicago would claim their city as having the largest Polish population outside of Poland, but in reality, your correct answer is New York City. Well, Chicago may have claimed that title during high immigration times in the early 1900s and even all the way through the 80s, they've since been passed by New York and have stayed behind New York since then. Although census data can be flawed, uh, based on some research, these numbers seem close enough to facts to say outright that that is 100% the case. Now some of Chicago's misunderstanding might have something to do with the religious differences between Polish populations in New York and Chicago. Some of the largest Polish ancestry neighborhoods in New York tend to be heavily Jewish, and so New York's Polish population probably includes a large number of Jews of Polish descent. Chicago also has Jews of Polish ancestry, but not as many as New York. When comparing New York to Chicago, residents may not take into account Jews of Polish ancestry because of the historical significance of Polish Catholics. Now, I'm not Polish myself, so I can't speak to their religious perceptions, but this is certainly an interesting anecdote to consider, just the fact that Polish Catholics were so polarizing that they were almost the only ones that Poles over in America counted as Polish. Now, the Polish population of New York is just over 200,000 people, making up about 2% of the city's total population, while, compared to Chicago, which has innately deeper and more centralized and outright Polish roots, Chicago has 150,000 people of Polish descent. When you compare the total populations of the cities though, Chicago has a much, much higher percentage of Polish people, sitting at about 20% of the city's population. So if you are a Polish resident of Chicago, you can proudly proclaim that your city has one of the highest percentages of Poles outside of Poland but unfortunately, just due to New York's sheer size, you can, cannot claim to be number one in total population. Now that brings us to the end of the show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. I'll be releasing podcasts every week from here on out, so in order to stay in tune with what I'm releasing, you can follow ThinkCap at ThinkCap, T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram, follow on Facebook with the same name, or even listen on YouTube. There will be links to each streaming platform where the show will be available, in addition to some fun content posted every couple of days to keep you thinking. If you 
enjoyed the show, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if you can. Any feedback from you guys helps me out tremendously. In addition, I would love to hear what you guys want to learn. If there are any fun trivia facts you know, or if you want questions pertaining to a certain topic, please leave that in your feedback, or you can comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. So, again, thanks for listening. I will catch you next week, and take care.